Applause. Applause. Now the pressure's on. <laughs> uh, usually I go home and tell my mom that I got booed in church because I admit to being a rider fan. <laughs> so now I can tell her I, before I even started. Thank you for allowing me to be with you today. It's a wonderful opportunity to experience your worship before I come and provide pulpit supply for you in a few weeks. So I very much appreciate the blessing and joy that this is. I ask you now to please pray with me and for me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O God. Amen. Amen. So in preparing for today... Nick, let me know that you're in the middle of a series on parables, and I should choose my favorite. My very first thought was, okay, so not the ten bridesmaids. Uh, just, just a little foreshadow. Guess what comes up in the lectionary on November 12th, which is the Sunday I'm back. <laughs> it's the ten bridesmaids. Choosing... Choosing the right parable is stressful. I want, we don't know each other. I want to get to know you. I want you to get to know me. But I don't want to, to push an agenda. I want to be true to the gospel. I eventually landed on this group of parables that includes the fig tree, the mustard seed, and the yeast. And this selection can tell you a bit about me. I'll also tell you a bit about me. My undergraduate degree is in land use and environmental studies with a focus on plant biology. My absolute favorite class, the one for which I rearranged my entire schedule two years in a row to make sure I fit it in, was called Plants and Human Affairs. And it was about how we interact with the world around us how certain plants have influenced human society throughout time. I learned the most interesting facts in that class, that the strawberry is not actually a berry. It's an accessory aggregate fruit. It's in the same family as apples and roses. And I learned that most plants are named after what they look like. Kind of makes sense. Kidney bean, bladderwort, shepherd's purse. My favorite, my personal favorite, is granny's eyebrows. It's a grass. The exception in that is the lentil. The lens is named after the lentil. So use of the lentil as nourishment and sustenance predates the discovery of a lens. I learned that tomatoes were in ornamental gardens in Europe for almost 50 years before anyone would dare to eat them because they were believed to be poisonous. So most Italian food prior to that had an eggplant base. And speaking of poisons, poisonous yams were an ingredient in the first birth control pills. I also learned that the Spanish conquest of Latin America would not have succeeded without the coca leaf, which was originally an ingredient in Coca-Cola along with cocaine. 
Our labs usually included eating or making some sort of food as well. Needless to say, it was a fascinating class. So these verses, this paracope, which is just a fancy way of saying a group of verses, appeals to me. First, because I get to say paracope. And second, because it is where my two interests meet, biology and theology, the study of life and the study of God. Basically the same topic, as far as I'm concerned, coming together. With the fig tree, we get to relate to the disappointment and frustration of the owner finding no fruit, as well as the patience and the hard work of the vine dresser. We can also read into the gardening metaphors, that need for weeding and pruning to make room for new growth. The idea that while fertilizer can totally stink, it is that manure that provides nutrients essential to strong development. Most importantly, it invites us to have the same faith as the vine dresser, believing in what can be, choosing hope. With the mustard seed, we have greatness from a very small beginning. A mustard seed is tiny, only about three millimeters in diameter, but it can germinate in a week and a half, taking root and growing almost as high as three meters in a single season. Such quick growth can almost put mustard in the category of a weed. Its hardiness is a great benefit if it is something that you want to be growing, and if not, it's incredibly hard to get rid of. This adds a bit of subversiveness to this parable. Because as Ben Witherington notes, Jesus could have chosen a genuine tree. But it's the mustard plant that shows, through the dominion, though the dominion appeared small like a seed during Jesus' ministry, it would inexorably grow into something large and firmly rooted which some would find shelter in and others would find obnoxious and try to root out. With the yeast, we again have something small that has significant results. To give it scale, three measures of flour would have been about 38 liters. So that's a lot of flour. And the yeast that's added to it influences all of it, leading to incredible growth. This parable links us to our history, knowing that it was three measures of, of flour that Sarah used to bake for the visitors that she and Abram received. It also invites us to look forward to a great celebration. Because what else are we going to do with that much bread but throw a great feast? For all the wonderful metaphors in here, the ways in which we are called to be the people of God, to live into hope, to take those first small steps that will eventually bear good fruit, it feels like there's something missing. And that's the application of these parables. 
the relevance, the current events to which they apply. Which brings me to the first five verses of this passage. As Jesus has been preaching and teaching, he has heard the news of the day, that is, of unthinkably tragic deaths that have occurred. Some people have been murdered by Pilate, and still other folks have died in an unfortunate accident. Perhaps this information came to Jesus by way of proximity, overhearing folks talk. Perhaps it was shared with him intentionally in an attempt to get him to comment on current events. He does, but in Christ-like fashion, not the way we would expect. He starts with a question, asking if they are more guilty than anyone else, if they somehow deserved the fate that befell them. Logically, we know that this is untrue. We know that the answer is a passionate and unqualified no. But somewhere deep down, it's an incredibly hard idea to shake. We know that these are nothing more than awful events that could theoretically happen to anyone, anywhere. Bad things happen, good things happen. Some people make good choices, some people make bad choices. And yet, when bad things happen to good people, we struggle to make meaning of that. When misfortune befalls everyone but us, when we get that narrow escape, we try to justify it. I must have done something right somewhere along the way. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, we want to see a connection between our actions and our fates. Because then we can have some semblance of control. By our actions and our choices, we can avoid suffering. At the hardest question, Michael Danner puts it this way. In order to have a world like that, there has to be something or someone pulling the strings. This someone pulling the strings has to agree that this is the way that the world should be. And this someone has to have the power and knowledge to make it happen. And this someone has to intervene in and control the world. So to maintain such a worldview requires us to believe that God has abdicated all power and authority to us. That's a lot of pressure. Jesus is calling on us to give up this idea. He is challenging us to change our thinking and our perspective and to reorient ourselves toward God. Because these current events about which he speaks are our current events. People die now in this country at the hands of the state, in prison, in foster care, in the streets. Whatever choices they made up to that point are irrelevant. What is, 
is that the state failed to protect them. And we are a part of that. We elect those who are in our public offices. We hold our public servants accountable. People die in tragic disasters, both natural and as a result of other people's actions. Wars, wildfires, acts of terror. Whatever choices they made up to that point don't matter. What matters is that we have a part in that. We have made changes to our environment, big ones, and we don't always know what the results will be. And the ways in which we interact with each other are different. We are disconnected and distant from one another and from God. Jesus calls on us to acknowledge our own complicity and to discard our arrogance, to focus on what matters. And he does so by telling a parable, one of patience and non-judgmental action. With the fig tree, Christ offers us a second chance, a third, a fourth, as many chances as we need. He is telling us that there is always more time More time for mercy, more time for growth, more time for goodness. Note that this doesn't come with a promise that all will be sweetness and light, for death is a perennial companion of life. But it does come with an opportunity to be part of something amazing, something more, as you say, something bigger than ourselves. We can be part of God's great kingdom, building the world as it is created to be. We can be like the fig tree, rooted in faith, both pruned and fertilized by hardship, made stronger, and ultimately producing good fruit to feed the hungry, hungry for food, for love, for God. We can be like the mustard seed with a seemingly small beginning, stretching and growing toward God, branching out and providing shelter to those who need it, shelter from homelessness, from addiction, from fear. We can be like yeast, influencing those around us for the better, all of us rising together. Let's make that choice. Let's take those first small steps by choosing humility and hope. Let us pray. God of creation, create in us new hearts to love others hearts that are free from the need to judge. Create in us new minds to seek your wisdom, minds that are free from the desire to seek our own gain and satisfaction. Fill us with the spirit of compassion to be moved towards the welfare of others. Create us anew and fill us with your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.